Hey there, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Euphoria Health Podcast. For any new listeners out there, my name is Matt Sapala and I am your host. I started this platform way back in 2018 with a main goal of educating and inspiring people on how they can create happier, healthier, and more sustainable change. I'm a qualified personal trainer and I'm currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition. My main goal is to not be your quick fix, but I want to be your only fix. And I really emphasize that through the whole podcast and my coaching philosophy as well. I'm joined this week by nutritionist and veteran of the Euphoria Health podcast, Ali McLean. You would all remember Ali from earlier in the year when we spoke about ways that you can implement sustainable nutritional changes and tips and tricks on how to navigate your way in a chaotic field. The nutrition space is so saturated and it's really, really hard for the consumer to understand what is vital information. So I'm super, super grateful for Ali and her ability to break down the complexity of this topic and really make it easy to digest. This week, we hone in on a really complex yet simple topic, and that's gut health. What I mean by complex is that it's really sophisticated on a cellular level, talking about all the metabolic processes involved in digestion, but extremely simple when we're talking about our food behaviors and how much of an impact they can have on the end result. 2020 could be the year that we start to normalize talking about poo, and this episode will showcase how paying attention to our bowel movements can give us a real indication of our overall health. During today's episode, Ali takes us through the common gastrointestinal issues, in particular, irritable bowel syndrome, or more commonly known as IBS. Majority of the population will resonate with this episode, as digestive issues, both severe and minor, are extremely common. If you resonated with anything that was spoken about today, don't forget to reach out to Ali to work together to create an action plan, creating a happy environment for your gut. Literally, your microbes will be singing and dancing. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Don't forget to let Ali and myself know what you thought of the episode. And if you learned anything new, I'd love to find out. Thanks again for tuning in, friends, and I'll see you on the other side. Ali McLean, a second time veteran on the podcast. How are you? Ah, yeah. Feeling um, very lucky to be on here for a second time. I'm really well. Thanks, Matt. How are you? I'm going good. I'm going good. We were just chatting before the show. We're almost at the end of our stage four little lockdown here. And it's like the light at the end of the tunnel. And you described it as being on a merry-go-round, which I really (laughs) like that. I feel a bit like that. Just, you know, everything that's happening is great. And I'm so lucky that I can work. And I'm also lucky that I can go into a bit of an introvert state and be quite happy there. But I do feel like Monday to Sunday, it's it's on repeat. There's not much diversity in like weekend activities and stuff right now. Yeah, I totally feel you on that note. But the light is at the end of the tunnel and it's been a super productive time on my end and I'm sure you're the exact same. So that's a positive out of this whole situation. Yeah, absolutely. Trying to make the most of it. Definitely. Um, I think everybody has to sort of embrace that, you know, learn, read, write, start a meditation course, do the cleanse you wanted to do. You know, um, I think it's an awesome opportunity for people to um, use the forced change for good rather than for bad. I couldn't agree more. And now that old excuse, like I don't have enough time, is gone out the window because we have an abundance of time at the moment. Well, yeah, precisely. Except for I feel, I feel, I feel for those people that are like homeschooling and working, because um, they're the ones that are just like we don't have more time. <laughs> There's no more time in our day when you're trying to school a child and get your work done. Yeah, definitely. I was chatting to my cousin who's actually an essential worker, and she's got two kids homeschooling, and she's just like, "This is a nightmare." And I totally feel for her and all the all the parents out there, and all the people out there that have got so much on their plate, juggling being a parent, a teacher, and still working at the same time. It's just you know crazy. Oh, yeah. So I tip my hat to you guys. Yeah, but I see you've had some great people on the podcast, like you had Shanna Kennedy recently, who probably, I haven't heard the chat, but probably would have given some great direction to people that are finding the balance really hard right now. Yeah, she is a wizard. I've actually listened to that podcast about four times and I find new bits of, you know, gold nuggets of info every time. So yeah, guys, if you haven't listened to that one, definitely go back and listen to it. I think it was like 
episode 55 or 56. Don't quote me. I should probably know that by now, but um, yeah, don't quote <laughs> me on the exact number. Ali, yeah. you are an absolute wealth of knowledge and we could chat for days and days and days about everything that you're doing in the nutrition space. But today we're going to dive down specifically into IBS and all the things that are associated with, with that, which I think is a really, really relevant conversation because a lot of the population do experience these sort of symptoms. Yeah. And we'll um, dive down that sort of realm later in the podcast, but I think it's probably really good to start by prefacing the conversation with how we digest food and, and explaining a little bit about the digestive system. So I'll leave that one over to you. Yeah, I love starting with this because um, it's so simple when you actually break it down. But I think for a lot of us, like that thought of what's going on between our mouth and our bottom is sort of like, oh, I hadn't even considered that, you know, there were all these processes going on there that I'm not even in control of. And so essentially, that's what our digestive system is. It's this big long tube. And of course, that is a simplified version of it, but it is this big long tube that runs from our mouth down to our anus. Um, and there's lots of different things happening along the way, but essentially digestion begins from the moment we see food or smell food. So you've probably you know experienced that, oh, someone's like baking some muffins in the oven, or you see a juicy lemon and your mouth starts to water. And that is like the first step in digestion. That's when we're getting like amylase, it's in our saliva, it's starting to be produced. And digestion starts there and then, because as soon as you bite that food, that food starts to get broken down by those enzymes. And then of course the teeth there in your stomach. Food then moves through from your mouth to your stomach via the esophagus. Um, and when it gets to the stomach, it hits this incredibly acidic environment. So we've got the top portion of the stomach, which is somewhat acidic. And then we've got the bottom portion of the stomach, which is incredibly acidic, like think battery acid. And this, this for me is in itself like such an important point of the conversation because how often do you hear people talking about, um, you know, I want to drink alkalizing water or people talking about I'm going to go have antacids or people being told to put on proton pump inhibitors, which is acid suppressing medication. Um, we all need to realize that there is a functional purpose for the acid there in our stomach. It helps to break down food um, and it also helps to essentially what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, sterilized food. Yeah. So it gets rid of parasites and any pathogens that might be coming in with that gulp that you've just had. Um, that acid is also really important for triggering the next part of digestion, which is food moving from the stomach, stomach through the duodenum into the small intestine. Um, and so if there's not enough acidity there, then it actually doesn't trigger the adequate release of additional digestive enzymes, to then further support the digestive process. So food then moves through, and by the time, this time it's not really food, it's what we call chyme. Um, it then moves through the small intestine and that's a very long organ. Some of you may have seen that visual of the digestive system. The small intestine is a very thin, but incredibly lengthy organ. I never remember the stat, but it's something like if you, if you flattened it out, it'd be like the equivalent surface of it. A tennis court or something like that you might remember that stat i'm terrible at remembering those sorts of things but there's a lot of surface area there in our small intestine and the purpose of that is so that it helps to absorb nutrients yeah so we absorb nutrients while food is moving through that small intestine and then essentially it moves to the large intestine where it's a lot of waste matter and then eventually that gets shunted out the other end um, and that is really the digestive process. That's obviously more detail we could go into, but I think that helps people to get a visual of what's happening from when they see food coming in to going out the other end. Um, but also I love, I love helping people to understand that view of digestion because if you appreciate the different points of digestion, you know, it takes 30 odd minutes for food to get from the mouth to the stomach. It takes, um, you know, two to four hours for food to get from the stomach through to the duodenum. It then helps you to conceptualize if you're having digestive issues, when are those issues starting to occur? And then we can start to dial in on, all right, well, it's happening fairly soon after you would eat. So we would presume or start to look at, um, you know, what's going on in the stomach, for example. Yeah, love that. Thanks for describing that for us, Ali, and painting such a picture. I think it's really important at the moment that 
well, not at the moment, in the past sort of five years, the conversation around food and how the digestion works and talking about our poo has actually become normalized and it's suddenly mm. not you anymore because it's a really good marker of our overall health. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, I always go pretty quickly into the conversation around poo when I'm doing seminars or doing consultations or, or doing podcasts. And, and that's because it is, it, it is not a taboo conversation. And if people still feel it is, then, um, then that's often when the, tr the, the troubles arise. You know, uh, we suspect that in the West there is around about um, seven, to, 7 to 15% of the population that suffer from IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. Um, but in reality, because of the number of people that aren't actually talking about their poop and their digestive systems and their, and their, um, their habits in that area, that the number of people infected with IBS, or I shouldn't say infected, but affected by IBS could be much, much greater than that 7 to 15% um, rate. So yeah, we need to be more comfortable talking about our, our poop and our digestive behaviours. And also we need to appreciate where the evidence is now. You know, we've got so much more research being done around the impact of the microbiome on um, not only digestive capacity, but health in general, you know, inflammation, um, fuel utilisation, hormone balance, all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's um, a really interesting area. And I think um, there is obviously a time and a place for talking about your poo, but it shouldn't be something that you're um, not open to doing in the right situation. Yeah, so, so true. And the science is rapidly evolving in this area, which is so, so exciting. Now, Ali, before we go down the IBS and irritable bowel disease, the process of digestion, there's so many different facets, but if we're sort of how do our behaviours sort of impact the digestion process and, and can those behaviours in the present time sort of impact the overall end result? So I guess where I'm heading with this is our behaviours when we're actually consuming food, like if we're scrolling or things like that, do they affect the overall result? Yeah, they definitely do. And I heard a quote from somebody um, maybe yesterday or the day before who literally said, if you are thinking or uh, moving while you eat, then you're not digesting adequately at least uh, and that's maybe an extreme way of looking at it but really we've got you know these two parts of our um, autonomic nervous system the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and you could also break them down to being considered as the fight or flight or the rest and digest so that fight or flight is associated with like hurry money worry um, and that rest and digest that's the state that we want to be in when we're sitting down to eat a meal, you know, because you know, there's only so much blood that our body has. And if we're in that fight or flight state, then the blood is being directed to the, the extremities, you know, the working heart, lungs and muscles to help us move. Um, so if we're in that state, when we're, we're preparing or ready to digest, then digestion's really going to be impaired. because you won't have that optimal um, blood flow and direction to the digestive or, uh, organs. And so, like, if you look back through history and time, um, some communities have actually developed a real ritual around eating, right? So you've got religious communities that might sit down and say grace um, before they eat. Other communities might just um, make more of a celebration of sitting down to eat. Uh, in other communities, like, you know, in Europe, they basically take off an afternoon to go and eat. Um, and these are all ways in which perhaps not even being conscious of it, these communities have taken the time to stop, relax and really be present when they sit down to eat their meal. And some of my clients, I, I think they're really surprised when in that first consultation I have with them, I ask them like, um, you know, what are your food behaviours like and or are you predisposed to stress? Like, are you in a state of high alert throughout the course of the day? And if, if you know, the answer is I eat on the run or I find um, mealtimes really stressful so I've got, um, you know, kids screaming at me around the table or because I'm in, in between back-to-back -back meetings or because I am using that time to sit down and complete my emails – or if the answer to the question is like, yes, I am stressed. Yes, I do put myself under a lot of pressure over the course of the day. Well, that indicates to me that we actually have to do a lot of work around behaviours. We don't have to talk about what is mindfulness. And for some people, that term is so airy-fairy. But, um, you know, mindfulness is just 
in my perspective or my opinion, do, doing something consciously. Um, and you can do mindful me mindfulness meditation or you can practice mindful eating, just literally just being aware and conscious of the task at hand. Uh, and for a lot of people, that is one of the reasons for um, their digestive issues and um, digestive upset and bloating. And like, firstly, how freeing is that to know, you know, I don't have to spend money on an expensive supplement. I could just start to be more conscious when I eat. Um, so I do think behaviors around the, the way we eat need to be looked at and need to be looked at more frequently. Yeah, really, really interesting there, Ali. And I bring this up in almost every podcast that I talk about the gut and talk about mm -hmm. the digestion because it is so, so important. And a lot of these um, conditions can potentially be avoided and these symptoms can potentially be avoided by changing your behaviours around eating food. And I guess for the listeners at home that, are, that have heard these terms and they're not sure how to actually put that into practice, do you have one tip that you would give people in order to, like when they're sitting down to have that meal, what sort of thing would you tell your clients to do? Oh, can I give multiple tips? Because I just realized that, um, you know, another big part of that eating consciously is chewing food. So, of course, if you're conscious, then you're going to be in that rest and digest state and, um, your, you know, your digestive um, organs are going to be better function. But also, if you're not chewing your food, then you're not creating adequate surface area um, for that food to then be um, broken down in the stomach. So, not chewing food can, can really impact. Um, I would say first and foremostly, like carve out time to eat. Don't eat standing at the kitchen bench if you can avoid it. Don't eat um, whilst you're completing emails. Try and carve out time to eat. And for most people, that would look like going to sit down at the kitchen bench or going to sit down at the kitchen table, um, you know, creating that space for you to go and eat because inadvertently that starts to have a flow on effect to where your attention is when you're eating has a flow on effect to what's your breath rate like when you're eating and there are all of the other things that i would then start to talk about as well love it really really good bits of advice there guys try that at home and and obviously let us know how you're feeling with those sorts of things it's so liberating to know that you're actually focusing on food for me i try and taste all the flavors that I put in my dish and really mm. try and find those sort of um, parts in my mouth that are replicating those flavors. It sounds weird, but I'm trying to articulate it the best I can. <laughs> no, I think that's a great thing to do. Like, have you done the, um, you know, the, I don't even know what you call it. Like maybe the Sultana challenge or the Sultana exercise where you, you know, you close, close your eyes, you get that sultana between your fingers, you, you roll it, you play around with it and you really start to get an appreciation for the, the feel of the sultana. Then you put it in your mouth and you let it sit there again. You, you, you feel the sultana, you start to stay, taste the sugars and they'll start to be broken down there in your mouth as well. Um, and then you chew the sultana and that really then will create more of a flavor sensation um, get more of those, um, uh, that, that saliva flowing. Uh, and like that is, a, that is a real breakdown of, of eating food. And you might not do that every time you, you eat a meal. But if you can remember that, like what it felt like to feel the food in your hand, then to have it in your mouth, then to start chewing it. Um, that's a, that's a practice, practice in mindful eating. Yeah, I have done that before with blueberries and obviously I've done it with frozen yeah. blueberries before and I ended up with blue on my fingers, but the whole process <laughs> is amazing and it's, it goes back to that mindful eating that we were chatting about before. Ali, yeah, I love where yeah. this conversation is heading and I think it's a great point in the conversation to shift our focus into gastrointestinal disorders and this is where the IBS sort of realm comes in. For the people at home that have never actually heard of IBS, can you give us a, a rundown of what it is and what sort of symptoms that you may experience with IBS? Mm. So IBS is characterized by um, chronic, um, chronic uh, digestive symptoms, which is essentially like stomach cramping and inconsistent bowel motions. They're the two um, most consistent symptoms in IBS and they're the two that we need to see in order to quote unquote diagnose a case of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. And it's often accompanied by a number of other symptoms, which might be, you know, um, experience of urgency that need to go to the bathroom quite quick, quickly, incomplete bowel motions, distension, bloating, indigestion, 
um, flatulence, so excess gas, uh, and, and nausea. So IBS is, let's call it a functional bowel disorder. It's really important that if somebody is experiencing those symptoms, you know, cramping, inconsistent bowel motions, mucus in the stool, um, that they don't immediately jump to a conclusion of IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, and the reason for that is because there is no there is no diagnostic tool for IBS aside from a process of elimination. And there is a lot of overlap between the symptoms of IBS and symptoms of other gastrointestinal disorders. And the overlap most commonly occurs with things like irritable bowel disease, which is chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract, depending on the type of irritable bowel disease that you have. And then also with celiac disease, which is an autoimmune condition where we see damage being done to the villi and microvilli uh, in the intestines. And then also things like cancer, colorectal cancer. So it's really important that if you're experiencing these symptoms of IBS, that you go and speak with a health professional uh, and talk with them about precisely what your symptoms are. Uh, and if there are some red flags, whether it be things like um, mucus in the stool, I see that as a bit of a flag. Um, any sort of blood in the stool, that's absolutely a flag. Needing to get up during the night to go to the bathroom is absolutely a, absolutely a flag um, that potentially it's not irritable bowel syndrome and maybe it's something else. So um, you then need to go and get screening done and this is where if I have a client who um, has some of those flags and hasn't yet had screening done, then I'll need to refer them on for, for screening because it is really important um, that if there is, that if like celiac hasn't been ruled out, if there is a chance that it's irritable, irritable bowel disease, that these are screened for. And once they're ruled out, that's when we can come back to that diagnosis of IBS. IBS yeah. So essentially IBS is diagnosed when all of those symptoms are present that I mentioned earlier. And there is the absence of any like structural or bio, um, biochemical explanation for the symptoms that they're experiencing. Love that, Ali. Thank you so much for explaining those and clearing those up for us. And mm. before we go any further, how many times per day is considered normal to have bowel movements? In inverted commas, you can't see me doing the normal. Yeah, movement. quote unquote, <laughs> quote unquote normal. Um, look, I would say that anywhere between one to three times per day would be a normal amount of times to go to the bathroom. Um, any less than once a day, I would consider to be abnormal um, and that you would want to have that, that, um, that what I would call constipation assessed and you want to do something about it. And that's really important because um, the stool is a major form of um, elimination, right? So through the stool, we're clearing excess hormones, we're clearing toxins, uh, we're clearing other waste products of digestion. And so if we're not clearing that out daily, then they have the potential to recirculate. And you, you feel like crap when you, when you don't go to the bathroom that one time a day. Um, anything more than that three times per day, firstly, I'd be looking at what's the bowel motion like? Um, you know, is it controlled or is there urgency associated with that? Uh, is it loose or is it, um, is it normally formed? Um, but usually up above um, th more than three per day, that's, that's abnormal. Most people would know, right? Like they wouldn't know if it's always loose, for example, um, that that's not quite normal. Going on from the symptoms of IBS, does untreated symptoms of IBS eventuate into irritable bowel disease? Is that some sort of um, indication of how that arises? Um, no, it's not necessarily that case. It's, it's not necessarily the case of untreated symptoms leading to irritable bowel disease. Um, it's more the case that if you don't rule out the irritable bowel disease, uh, and you, you literally just go down that path of IBS, well, then you're um, risking not diagnosing a condition which is actually risky to um, longevity um, and, and mortality, right? So if you're overlooking 
um, celiac disease, which is an autoimmune condition, your, your body in response to the consumption of gluten will start to attack the, the cells of the villi and microvilli. If you're not um, addressing that celiac disease and, and you go on for the rest of your life eating gluten and doing all of these other things in the corner to try and alleviate IBS symptoms, that's really dangerous because then that does start to get associated with nutrient deficiency, which then has a flow and effect to energy and mood and mental health and skin and, and risk of, um, of cancers as well. So you want to identify that celiac disease if it's celiac disease that's contributing to the IBS-like symptoms. Similarly for um, uh, other diseases of the gastrointestinal tract like IBD. So these are those inflammatory conditions. And um, this is Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis and microscopic colitis. These are different to celiac disease, but in, the, in these conditions, if they're not managed, then again, you run the risk of um, much poorer quality of life and, and then also things like cancers as well. So it's not so much that the IBS will lead to the risk of those IBDs and autoimmune conditions, but it's more that if you're over here trying to manage IBS, but really it's, it's a case of IBD or celiac, uh, then it's dangerous. It's dangerous long-term for that individual. Really, really interesting. Now, Ali, I'd love to touch on what leaky gut is before we start getting into the testing and the treatment of these sort of um, gastrointestinal disorders. So for people at home that I've heard of the term leaky gut. Can you explain how you refer to that in clinic and what it actually is? Mm. Now, leaky gut, I, I tend to use the term increased intestinal permeability, um, but most people have heard of the term leaky gut, so you always find yourself there anyway. Um, let's say leaky gut because it's easier for me to articulate um, and say that say that more quickly than increased intestinal permeability. Um, but leaky, leaky gut can be a driver for, um, for IBS symptoms. So it is something that needs to be assessed. But essentially, you want to think of the gut lining as being like, um, I use the analogy of a, a fly screen actually quite often. So you want to think of the gut lining as being a fly screen. And that fly screen has got very fine pores um, that allow broken down nutrients and amino acids to get from the inside of the gut through to the bloodstream, which is sitting just there on the other side of the gut lining. That's wonderful. Those fine pores allow those nutrients through, but they also act as a barrier so that larger undigested proteins, bacteria, pathogens can't get from inside the gut to the bloodstream. In the case of leaky gut, think of it like the fly screen that's become damaged. So, you know, the dog's been running into the fly screen in the back door for months and months on end, holes start to form. And so suddenly those flies that previously couldn't get through now can make their way through those little holes. In the case of the gut lining, we have these tight junctions, which are those holes in the fly screen. And permeability is when those either the holes in the fly screen get bigger or those tight junctions get looser. So those loose tight junctions create that increased permeability, which is when we get those undigested proteins, bacteria, pathogen getting through. And that's not good because our body's not used to seeing those things on the other side of the fly screen, right? Our body is not used to seeing those things inside the bloodstream and that then triggers the immune response. And so if we've got this chronic increased intestinal permeability, you know, we've chronically got flies and mosquitoes and you know, spiders getting through to the other side of the fly screen, um, then it's going to create this chronic activation of the immune system, um, which is why we now look at increased intestinal permeability as being really um, the start of the, the cascade associated with autoimmune conditions, because it's the start of that, um, chronically activated immune system. Now, the next thing you might ask me is, well, what con what contributes to that increased intestinal permeability? You read um, my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. Um, one of the biggest contributors to that is gluten. Now, gluten has a um, particular protein called gliadin, and gliadin actually triggers the release of zonulin. And zonulin is like the gatekeeper for those tight junctions. So more zonulin equals um, looser junctions um, and, and vice versa. So this is why for a lot of people who perhaps aren't celiac, I still would often, often recommend a... Um, 
a very low, if not gluten-free dietary protocol um, in cases of um, any sort of inflammatory conditions, whether it be skin conditions like eczema or acne, whether it be bloating, poor digestion, um, uh, there's so many autoimmune conditions, chronic fatigue, things like that, I would really look at um, removing gluten as being part of the healing process. Maybe not always the long-term strategy for an individual, but definitely part of the healing process. Um, and in terms of how we measure that increased intestinal permeability, um, we can use zonulin testing. So we can actually, um, through stool testing, we can measure zonulin uh, and that can then help us to um, you know, categorically see whether or not there is increased intestinal permeability. Now, sometimes we can start to treat for leaky gut um, quite safely without having to do that testing. Um, but when there's, um, you know, when there's real persistent digestive issues, um, when we want to get really clear in the protocol, the length of the protocol, um, when we need to feed compliance and really motivate that individual to clean things up, remove the gluten, reduce the stress, perhaps review their pharmaceuticals that they're on, um, that's when doing testing to look at the, the levels of zonulin can be really helpful. Love it. So, so interesting. And I'm actually reading Dr. Will Bolshewitz's book at the moment, Fiber Fueled, and he's a gastroenterologist. And I've mentioned him mm. on the podcast before. And, and it's just so, so incredibly amazing to know how much the gut plays a role in terms of treating and prevention of all cause disease. It's the correlation between the gut and the whole body is just incredible. And and like I said before, the the science is still so new in this department. It's exciting to see what's going to happen in, you know, the next decade. Yeah. Well, like the guts at the center of it all, right? You know, it's a it's a part of our immune system. It's a huge part of our immune system, like 70 to 80% of our immune system. It's that physical barrier of defense, but then it's also the home for where elements of the immune system are created. Um, it impacts our, our hormones, it impacts our mood. We have, you know, 95% of serotonin being made in the gut. So you can imagine if the gut's inflamed, the gut lining's inflamed, that will have an impact on serotonin production. Uh, you've got the gut impacting nutrient absorption. So what are we if we don't have nutrient absorption, right? Like we, we aren't what we eat. We are what we digest and absorb. So you've got that flow and effect of the gut. You've got the gut impacting on um, detox and toxin clearance. You've got the gut impacting on hormone balance. We're not, when, you know, if we're not clearing those toxins and those excess hormones daily, um, then, you know, for my clients, especially my female clients, I then start to look at the risk of things like estrogen dominance and excess estrogen. Um, so, yeah, and I probably haven't even, I probably haven't even touched the surface on everything that's associated with the gut. But, um, you know, Hippocrates said that all disease begins in the gut. And I believe that is true. And so is the equal opposite. All good health begins in the gut because it is at the center of it all. So incredibly amazing, Ali. And I'm cautious about this question because I don't want to go too much off trap, off topic uh -oh. and open up a can <laughs> of worms. But you touched on before that the gut is sort of like impacting how much hormones we produce and all those sorts of things. Is there a link between, you know, like those increased intestinal permeability, IBS symptoms to other conditions that involve your hormones like endometriosis, uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, yes, there is. And we, we can start to look at the, the mechanisms for that. So in, in something like um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, there's a, there's a number of connections there. So, um, you know, that is an association, that is a, a condition where there can be a lot of inflammation driving that condition. Um, there's different types of PCOS. So we've got like testosterone dominant PCOS, which can lead to um, sort of insulin resistance, which then leads to the, the PCOS. Um, I don't know if you've had big chats on this, but we'll sort of use that acronym for now. Um, uh, and then you've also got yeah, the, the inflammation associated with poor gut health and, and leaky gut, which will then flow on to things like blood sugar control, insulin resistance uh, and, and hormone imbalance. So there's definitely that connection there. 
endometriosis, interesting one that you highlight because that is, that is something that often um, can be missed if somebody has got IBS-like symptoms. So depending on the symptoms that associate um, or come along with those IBS symptoms, um, you know, whether it be really heavy periods, really, really painful periods, and then also digestive symptoms, um, exploring the possibility of endometriosis is, is also important. So yeah, there's absolutely connections there. You've done an incredibly great job in summarising that without diving down a rabbit hole, Ali. So well done there. I know we're going to have another chat in future podcasts about polycystic ovaries and and I'm really looking forward to that as well. Um, But heading back into our IBS symptoms and and that sort of realm, how do we test and diagnose something like this? What sort of things happen in clinic? Mm, Yeah. So first and foremostly, there is the understanding that IBD and autoimmune conditions have been ruled out. So if there's any of any of the red flags, um, you know, uh, symptoms were really sudden in their onset. Uh, There's blood in the stool, mucus in the stool, needing to go to the bathroom at night. there are probably some other flags that I've, I've missed or things like fever, um, vomiting, you know, those are sorts of things that from my perspective, um, you know, I need to refer my client onto a physician to have those things assessed. Um, if those things like have been assessed and ruled out, that's when we can start to look at, all right, well, what is driving the IBS like symptoms? And that's when we can start to do more testing when I more clearly understand um, what the primary symptoms are for, for the client. Yeah. So, um, doing things like, um, breath testing, um, doing things like stool analysis, um, blood tests that can all help us to get more clear on what's driving, um, the IBS like symptoms and can then get, help us to get clear on what the treatment is. And often it's multifactorial, right? So, in IBS, you know, some of the causes are, I'm just going to choose a couple here and we can definitely expand on this, but, you know, one of those causes will, will be visceral hypersensitivity, which is basically in, in somebody who has IBS, they tend to have this heightened awareness of what's going on in their gut and that causes the pain and the discomfort. And this visceral hypersensitivity, um, you know, this coupled with slight intolerance, um, slight intolerance, particularly of um, short chain carbohydrates. And some of you may have heard of these being um, uh, regarded to as FODMAPs, those fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, um, monosaccharides and polyols. Um, you know, that layered with visceral hypersensitivity is going to drive the symptoms that the person is experiencing because these poorly absorbed short-chain carbohydrates will move through the small intestine. Um, they, they, they won't be absorbed properly either because of slow transit time or just because there are various other things impacting the absorption. There'll be water drawn into the small intestine because these guys draw water through osmosis. And then because they're not broken down, they'll move on through the large intestine where they'll then be fermented and create gas and distension. And so that person who wasn't able to adequately break down the lactose, for example, um, then starts to feel all of that more than the average individual because they've got this visceral hypersensitivity. So yes, the understanding what might be driving the, the, the IBS like symptoms then helps to determine what do we do next to start treating it. Now, often what I would do in clinic um, is start with, well, always start where the client's at, but let's say, um, the, the client has literally been to the gastroenterologist, had everything else ruled out. And so the gastroenterologist has, has just said, you've got IBS, which is often what happens, by the way. So um, the gastroenterologist clears an individual for anything um, more sinister. And that's not to say that IBS isn't sinister because there's some really interesting research. Like one article showed that IBS sufferers would gladly give up 15 years of their life if they could be free of symptoms. So that helps you to understand like how significant the condition is if you have it. But in the eyes of 
let's say a gastroenterologist, they're really wanting to screen for life-threatening conditions. So once those life-threatening conditions have been screened and, you know, they've just got a case of IBS, quote unquote, um, if I then get that person coming to see me, I will usually start with a form of an elimination diet if they haven't already tried that. Now, the protocol with the most science behind it is the low FODMAP diet, which was developed by Monash University, I think in about 2000 and five um, released that um, and I will I will use that for about a two to four week period to see if we can start to get symptom resolution um, and if we can that's when we then start doing um, uh, potentially some challenges or I might also do some extra testing during that time as well so that low FODMAP protocol is a great way of getting symptom resolution because you're removing these short chain carbohydrates that remember can lead to the, the water being drawn into the small intestine, the, the fermentation there at the large level of the large intestine and cause that pain and discomfort. Um, and symptom resolution obviously is a wonderful thing for the individual, but um, then being able to get more clear on, well, what's driving the reactivity to those to those FODMAPs. Um, and again, depending on the symptom picture, that's where I might do extra testing. Um, we know that almost half of those with IBS have what's called SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is essentially when bacteria that are supposed to live in the large intestine, they migrate up towards the small intestine and then they, they make a home for themselves and they overgrow. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth at the moment can be tested via, via breath testing. Um, you know, hopefully one day we will have a slightly more robust form of testing, but that's the best we have available at the moment. Um, beyond that breath testing for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, there might be stool analysis that gets done. So again, depending on the symptom picture, we might go down the route of doing stool analysis. And there's different analysis, which I will choose in different cases. Um, but yes, we, we now as the consumer have access to some really wonderful stool analysis, which allow us to see like every single bacteria that's living in our gut microbiome. We can look at whether there's parasites there in the gut microbiome. We can look at what those bacteria are doing for us. So are they um, utilizing those undigested carbohydrates to create beautiful short chain fatty acids that then go on to um, support the integrity of the gut lining and the mucosa there or are those bacteria creating toxins that then actually start to create more havoc in the gut um, so the testing we now have available to us is uh, is first of all so so interesting um, but then also really empowering because it helps us to, again, um, dial in on what's contributing to the, the case of IBS. I love that, Ali, and I love the objective testing along the way as well because someone that has potentially lived with these symptoms for a prolonged period of time may not know what it's like to feel quote-unquote normal again. So those obje objective testing tests along the way, I should say, um, are really, really crucial for that sort of development. Yeah. And also where working with somebody through this process can be really helpful because, you know, sometimes I might see a client for the first time and their list of symptoms and the severity of those symptoms is significant, right? So they, um, they might not go to the bathroom for three days at a time, but then they have loose bowel motions. They might be getting reflux. They might be bloating from the moment that they wake up um, and they, they might have, let's say, a, a skin rash and potentially they've got an iron deficiency. And so, you, you know, you work with this person for, for, for a couple of months and throughout that time, I personally am and always since checking back on those things, you know, are you still bloating first thing or is it happening later in the day now? Is it happening less frequently? Are you still constipated for three days at a time or is it starting to come every one day or every two days? Uh, and when you're in the thick of it, like when you're that individual who's been dealing with IBS for so long, those very incremental changes in how you're feeling, you might not sense them. 
And so either diarising or, or working with a professional on your journey can help you to, um, I guess, stock take and um, sense check your, your improvement in those, in those areas. And of course, repeat testing is an option. Um, if, it's, if, if it's a luxury that we have with the client, then I mean, yeah, we'd be doing like repeat analysis every six to 12 months on things like breath testing and, um, and microbiome analysis. Love it, Ali. And you mentioned in that little segment there, short chain fatty acids. And I know these are king for both treatment and prevention of issues related with your digestive system. So what are they for the people that have never heard of these before and where are they found? Um, so short chain fatty acids are essentially um, uh, byproducts of um, bacterial um, fiber fermentation. So um, we've got different types of short chain fatty acids. We've got butyrate, propionate, acetate, and there's one other that I'm, I'm going to forget off the top of my head. Um, but we've got various different types of short chain fatty acids and they basically help to support the, the mucosa um, there, which is that beautiful, I guess, protection on the gut lining. So they are incredibly important. And this is why fiber is important in the diet. Um, you know, fiber coming from things like um, fruits and nuts and seeds and um, various vegetables and of, of course, legumes, um, you know, the various fiber, we're, the various types of fiber that we're con consuming coupled with the various types of bacteria that live in our gut have a flow on effect to the various types of short chain fatty acids um, that are being produced. So uh, I guess there's like that full circle from like diet to bacteria um, and what the end product is. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. And why there's so many considerations like this testing that we now have available um, through a company called Metabiome. Um, allows us to see what short chain fatty acids are being produced or not being produced and also what bacteria are there or aren't there uh, in the gut. And with that information on hand, it helps us to determine like what specific fibers do we need to bring into the diet, A, so we can support specific short chain fatty acid production and B, so that we can support growth of um, specific bacteria. Uh, so it's all like this perfect little recipe for success or um, not so much success. Heading back into the thing that we mentioned earlier, the autoimmune condition, celiac disease. I know this is something that's really, really common in nowadays society. And, and you explained what it is before the um, intolerance to gluten. What are some of the sort of symptoms that you will feel when you're diagnosed with celiac disease, are they harsher than sort of simple, not simple, but IBS symptoms? That's a really good question, actually. And I think the answer to it isn't simple because we've got, A, we've got varying rates of symptom severity when it comes to IBS. Um, so, you know, we've, I think it's like 30 or so percent of IBS sufferers would classify themselves as having um, sort of high um, degree of symptom severity, and then we go down through, um, you know, moderate to mild. Um, so somebody there who's got the high level of severity associated with their IBS would actually be on par with somebody who has got symptoms of celiac disease, for example. And then of course, with celiac disease, we've got those that are highly reactive, and we've got those that are not so reactive um, to the gluten that they're exposed to. So there definitely can be overlap there between people with IBS and those with celiac disease. And the, the symptoms of celiac are not clear cut. Um, you know, it could be fatigue, it could be um, skin conditions, or it could absolutely be you are hunched over in pain in the stomach um, in, in response to any gluten that has been consumed. Uh, and so that's, that's why the, the screening for celiac is really important. And you might not have to go down the route of like gold standard testing, which, may, which essentially means go and get a colonoscopy and, um, and a biopsy. Um, but you could do some screening to at least um, 
uh, determine whether or not that step of a colonoscopy is needed. So I'm not sure if you're aware of the different screens that can be done, but we do have two different options. Um, one is that we can get antibody testing done through the blood. And that's something that you could do for somebody who's currently eating gluten. For somebody who is on a gluten-free diet and has been for at least a number of weeks and isn't willing to eat gluten again, um, then that test isn't going to be valid because obviously they won't have those antibodies being produced because the gluten's not coming into the system. Um, the other option is to do genetic testing. Um, so you can get the HLA DQ8 and... I forget the number of the other one. You can get those genes tested. Um, it's really going to bug me that I don't have that number off the top of my head now, but basically <laughs> the HLA-DQ genes, um, you can get those tested and that essentially helps to see whether you've got the genetic predisposition for celiac disease. So there's some screenings that you can get done if you are concerned at all about whether it is celiac disease. And um, if the if the antibody testing comes back as negative, then it's usually pretty clear that it isn't celiac disease if that person has been eating enough gluten. Um, and if the genetic testing comes back negative, then there's like a 0.01% chance that that person could actually have gluten. So that, that screening is really helpful, especially in somebody sort of below the age of 50 um, who's presenting with IBS symptoms um, and, and those tests come back negative. Uh, a lot of gastroenterologists would then just say it, it, it most likely is a case of IBS. But again, that's up to the gastroenterologist as to how much further they want to go with testing. And stripping it back a little bit further, when you're at the supermarket, I know we spoke about reading labels in our last podcast, Ali, but how does someone know if there's actually gluten in a product? Is that recognize that uh, a product should say this product contains gluten? How is it recognized? Mm, yeah, uh, no, I don't, it won't always say this product contains gluten, but you can definitely look out for any, um, any grains that do contain gluten. And there is a long list of those. So some people might think it's just wheat that you've got to look out for, um, but really it's wheat, rye, barley, couscous, semolina. These are all sources of gluten that need to be um, need to be reviewed for on um, ingredient lists. And then, of course, there's other places where it could be hidden. So, some common culprits are beer, soy sauce, Vegemite, um, and sometimes even like packet flavorings um, have little traces in there as well. So. This is, uh, again, where we come back to eating whole and, and real food. Whole and real food doesn't have gluten. <laughs> um, and so if you're focusing on eating whole and real food, as in, you know, wheat that hasn't been processed, grains that haven't been processed, but you're focusing on vegetables and um, legumes and fruits, um, good quality fats and oils, like these are naturally void of gluten. So you don't have to be so, so concerned if you are literally eating a whole food, real food diet. Uh, interestingly, some people are incredibly sensitive to gluten. So some celiacs, um, you know, I heard one case study of a celiac who was a bakery assessor. So her job was to go around to different bakeries and assess I guess things like OHS and and stuff like that. Um, but her case of celiac was so severe that um, she was no longer able to carry out that work because that exposure to the wheat um, just in the air was enough to trigger off her immune system. So she was still feeling feeling symptoms. Yeah. So there is a real spectrum of how significantly people um, experience their their celiac symptoms. Um, and oh, I don't know, maybe part of it's denial. Some people with it don't, don't want to um, face up to it. I've certainly seen that happen. Uh, and maybe it's a, a case of progression as well, that things get worse over time. Yeah, that's, that's so crazy. I know like sometimes cooking in the same pan, if you're sensitive mm. to it, um, can set off that sort of immune response. Yeah. Yeah. Or, 
Yeah, or eating grain-fed um, animal products. So, yeah, I know vast majority of people listening to this probably don't that eat that much in the way of animal products, but certainly if you've got loved ones that are celiac and, um, you know, they're eating that grain-fed product, then it is a risk. It is a risk that um, uh, that gluten in there is, is, is sitting in the tissue of that animal and then that's being consumed by somebody with celiac, which for somebody that's sensitive... You don't want to do that at all. <laughs> Definitely not crazy. And guys, I will find a list of products that do contain gluten in them. I know there's a long list and I'll have them in the show notes just for your reference. So you can have a look and, and really find those, those things that you may not have known before. Oh, that's awesome. Legend, Matt. Does the research show a correlation between undiagnosed and untreated IBS to, you know, bowel cancer later in life? Um, the research, well, undiagnosed and untreated, well, that one's a hard one to look at the research, right? Because if it's undiagnosed and untreated, then we, we can't necessarily make that correlation to if those people then went on to um, have cancer, if that makes sense. Um, but certainly the evidence suggests that in um let's say cases how do i summarize this firstly there's not a lot of research around it um but there was a cohort study done um in finland and they looked at rates of colorectal cancer in the period of one to ten years after diagnosis with ibs and what they found was that in the first three months after diagnosis that the risk of colon cancer was uh, more than eightfold and um, they deduced that that was most likely because their diagnosis of IBS was incorrect in the first place. So that's the individual who hasn't had all of the screening or the screening didn't pick up on the possibility of cancer. They've been told they've got IBS and three months later, obviously, they've found out that it wasn't. Um, but then they showed that after that three-month period, um, the 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 risk or the incidence of cancer was uh, not greater than the general population. So so interesting, and I guess I threw you under the bus a little bit there, Ali, <laughs> by making you recite that. But no, that's that's it's incredible to show how much of an impact the food choices that we make and how we absorb and like do not absorb food has an impact on our overall health and well-being. It, it's crazy. Mm. Definitely. I think also like remembering that IBS itself, there is a driver for it. Okay. So what this study potentially isn't looking at is um, what's, what's driving the case of IBS. So looking at things like um, the, the gut microbiome and dysbiosis that's present because yeah, if somebody goes on to live with dysbiosis for tens of years on end, then maybe that will have a flow on effect to inflammation and, and um, risk of cancer, you know? So I think this is an area where like a, a lot of research, a lot more research does need to be done. Um, but also remembering that irritable bowel syndrome is not that chronic inflammatory condition that something like IBD is. Um, and, and those conditions is where there is more risk of that cancer. Love it, Ali. And I know we're coming towards the end of the podcast. We've timed this to perfection, I must say. <laughs> is there anything that you think we've missed that is really important for the listeners to take on board? I think, you know, this was a really great um, broader discussion around um, potential complications with digestion and the gastrointestinal symptom, gastrointestinal system. I think if somebody out there is anyone out there is living with IBS like symptoms and has been doing so for, for more than three months, then definitely reach out to a health professional who can help you to do the relevant testing or to help you to do the, the relevant troubleshooting that, that needs to get done. Um, you don't want to leave it going for too long because a, it's really uncomfortable and B there are, potential flow on effects to your health and longer term quality of life. So I guess, yeah, st start getting onto it. You know, don't live with these symptoms for, for more than a, a short period of time. Start getting onto it and work with someone who can help you. Definitely love it. And how can people get in contact with you in regards to potentially exploring this area further, Ali? 
if people want to contact me, then they can um, either head on over to Instagram and my Instagram handle is nutritionally or nutrition followed by Ellie. Uh, or they can head on over to my website, which is nutritionally.com. And there's a, there's a contact page there for me. Cool. And I'll have those in the show notes for any new listeners that haven't listened to our last episode. Ali, I will also message you privately and get a little stool chart to put in the show notes as well for people to have a reference oh, yeah. at home. Um, I think that's a really good starting point for people that may not be as in tune with their body as others. So, yes. Good idea. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be back on and chatting. Thanks, Ali. Awesome to pick your brain. Have a great day. Well, friends, to say that we covered some territory during that one would be an absolute understatement. Ali, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and sharing your wisdom with the community. I know there is so much information to digest, pardon the pun, here folks and I think this is a great resource that we can go back to three four five times to really comprehend what's happening in our bodies like I said friends there is a link to all relevant resources in the show notes if you're wanting to find out some more information and if you're wanting to take a deeper look at your own gut health and and figure out an action plan going forward don't forget to get in contact with Ali and her details are all in the show notes hope you guys have a fantastic week and I'll see you next time on the euphoria health podcast